Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. Okay, tell the person you're talking to, Psalm 114. Psalm 114. Say it like this, if you don't mind. Uh, Psalm 114, brother or sister, depending on who you're talking to. I, we, are, we are the people of God, and we are the family of God, and uh, we should emphasize that. I don't know that we have to run around calling everybody brother and sister all the time, but we do need to know that we are a spiritual family, and that we are a part of the body of Christ and the family of God, and um, that has a lot of a lot of implications and applications for it. Psalm 114 is about the transforming presence of God, and God being uh, central and present in our lives causes transformation to take place. And uh, if we're the people of God, then we're a transformed people. And you might not you might not have been doing this long enough to see the history of transformation, but but already He's begun to do something. If you put your faith in Him, He's begun to do something transformative in your life. And we ought to be thankful for that. One of the things that he's done is he's, he's brought us out of the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the, into, out of the dominion of darkness. The NIV uses a specific word. A dominion means the authority. It brought out from under the authority of darkness and into the kingdom of the son that he loves. So that transformation isn't seen right at first. It's something that happens supernaturally outside of our view. Aren't you glad that God's doing things behind the scenes. He's working when we're asleep, even. Aren't you glad for that? Uh, And then there are repercussions from that that begin to affect how we live. And if we're responding to the Lord in the right way, there is an impact and a transformation. I was glad that Susie read from the Psalms this morning. Uh, This is a near neighbor to the Psalm that we read, Psalm 114. Um, And it tells us about God's way of dealing with his people. And we are his people. Who's his people? We are. We are his people. And so this psalm and the one right before it was sung right before eating the Passover meal. Uh, But did you know that the psalms were not only the songbook of Israel, but they've been the songbook of the church from the very beginning. And what that means is that all the Old Testament stories were written into poetry, not all of them as in uh, the whole thing, but they were written into poetry, the Old Testament stories, and sung by the people of God all around the world. And some of them who've never been to Egypt and have never stepped foot in the promised land, uh, and some of us are in this room right here, uh, have sung these psalms, and they mean something to us. Okay, so when we talk about the deliverance from Egypt, there's a sense in which that's our, our deliverance too. When we talk about being brought into the promised land, there's a sense in which which we enter into a promised land, as the writer of Hebrews likes to tell us. And there's a Sabbath rest that's included in all of that, too. And so these are our stories. And um, we need to know that God is making a difference in our lives and that God has been making their experience our song. And that's a, an awesome thing as we think about that. Let's look at Psalm 114. We'll read the whole thing, verses 1 through 8. So let's begin at verse 1. When Israel came out of Egypt, Jacob from a people of foreign tongue, Judah became God's sanctuary, Israel his dominion. The sea looked and fled. The Jordan 
turn back. The mountains leap like rams, the hills like lambs. Why is it, see, that you fled? Why, Jordan, did you turn back? Why, mountains, did you leap like rams, you hills like lambs? Tremble, earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turned the rock into a pool and the hard rock into springs of water. And here is a song that relates to our experience as well. So why is it important that we we look at these Old Testament passages telling in at least at the first initial glance the story of someone else? These are this didn't happen to us uh, exactly. We weren't born yet. It happened to other people, but it still matters. And so why is that important? I think number one because those miracles led from the all people. Remember there was Adam and and a whole group of people that developed from Adam and Eve and uh, came through Noah, and then Noah had, he was fruitful and multiplied, and then there was a lot of people, and then God picked out of that line a certain righteous lineage, right? And it comes down to Abraham. And so out of all the people, he, he drew a nation, and it goes, narrows to a tribe, to a family, and ultimately to Jesus, and then get this, back again to all the earth. Okay, I don't know if you thought about this, but there's a narrowing, narrowing, narrowing in Scripture down to Jesus. Think about it. Adam, and you have the three boys, right? Cain and Abel and Seth that are mentioned in particular. Through Seth, the righteous line proceeds, goes down through Noah, through Abraham. From Abraham, not Ishmael, Isaac, right? And then Isaac has two boys named Jacob and Esau, and it's who's chosen? Jacob, and from Jacob, he's got the 12 boys, right? And one of them is chosen with a special promise, and his name is Judah, okay? And then out of Judah, we start to see it narrow a little bit, and it comes down to the next real famous figure. It goes through Ruth, obviously, and and, uh, uh, Boaz, but it comes down to a real famous figure in the Old Testament, and his name is David, okay? And then through David, it's narrowed, and it comes down finally to Jesus, all right, so there's a narrowing, but then at Jesus, the seed promise is fulfilled through your seed, what? All the nations. It zooms back out again. It's a blessing for everyone. A narrowing, a, never, a narrowing, a narrowing, a narrowing, and then all people. So we can kind of see this as part of the story, and this is what God is doing. God used the Exodus to separate his people from the nation of Egypt for holiness to bring about the Messiah for the redemption of all nations. And so we're thankful for that because we're, most of us, part of the all nations, and we're glad that God has done that. And so when we read this, we're reading a story that's part of God's redemptive plan. It's a story back in history, but if it doesn't happen, our salvation doesn't happen exactly in the same way. Now, God, we could speculate, and God could do things different ways, but he didn't. He did it this way. And so we need to understand this is part of our salvation story. The second reason why this is important is because the way that God did those things is, in a way, our story too. Because God is still doing similar things. They tell us something about God, and they tell us something about how God works. And then the question is, does God change? Does he change? No, methods change, but the principles and the purpose and the person that he is does not change. God's, God stays the same. And so when we learn something about God back in the Old Testament, we go, man, that seems so long ago. The story that's described here in uh, um, Psalms is the story of the Exodus, which is about 3,500 years ago. And we're like, 
well, what does even last week have to do with me? You know, we live in the present moment. But this is talking about something that is part of our story. And we need to understand that God has done big things that have outlasted lives. There's something beneficial to us, and I think something that, that helps our soul squeeze into humility when we realize that God's plan is bigger than us. We need that, don't we? They like, long after Moses is gone, he's still doing the plan. God's still doing it. And uh, he's still working the plan. And if the Lord should tarry and we're, uh, we're and the earth is still here when we're gone, he will continue to fulfill his plan. You understand that that's big. That's big. It's bigger than us. And so we see that. And then I think a third reason is, is because this psalm shows us how to praise God when he shows himself mighty among us. We need to know how to praise God. This is it's like um, the Holy Spirit was trying to do something this morning and telling us, hey, we need to be praising the Lord. What Susie had to share a little bit ago, that there's instruction about how to praise the Lord. I think this psalm tells us something about how to praise the Lord. What should be our proper response when he's done something that is amazing, when he's shown himself mighty among us. The events themselves were the basis of calling for praise. And one of the uh, writers about this psalm tells us, not the writer of, but wrote commentary on it, said the thing, the thing that's strange about Psalm 114 is that it doesn't have the usual, uh, the usual command. The usual command is uh, praise the Lord. You know, there's something that's in the psalm that tells us what we're supposed to do as a result of this. It's called the imperative. It's the the command that tells us, okay, now that you've seen God has done all these things, praise the Lord. This psalm doesn't have that. It's like it's implied in it. Like you look at all that God has done, and God is just waiting to see what are you going to do in reaction to what I've done. Okay, And so I think that's really important is that as we think about life, we don't need to wait for somebody else to say, hey, give a testimony. We need, to be sh- we need to be sharing thanks for what God has already done in our lives. We don't need somebody else to prod us on and say to, say to do this. We, we do have that sometimes. But we ought to do that uh, as a response to what God has already done. So this psalm talks about the exodus from Egypt, but the principles here are true for us also. Because God isn't changing in his character, his purpose, uh, you'll find that what he wants for us is the same thing he wanted for them. And through the Exodus is the history of God's leading his people out of Egypt. Let me mention three areas that this talks about. In verses 1 and 2, it talks about a transformation because God is a God of transformation. He's, uh, he has transformative presence. If, he's, if we're in God's presence, he's going to transform us because we're going to react to him in one of two ways. Okay? When we come into the presence of God, one way that we'll react to him is that we're going to either reject or neglect. Let's put that in one category. Or we're going to buy in. Okay, is that fair to say? We're going to buy into what he's doing or who he is. We're going we're to be welcoming to him might be a better way to say that. And either one of those two decisions will lead us down a transformative road. Okay, This has been stirring in my mind lately a lot. Is that when you accept Christ, when you welcome the way that God is working, when you're on board with the way the Spirit is moving, there's a, there's a yes to God, okay? And when that yes happens, we're moving in God's direction. <laughs> you understand that there's a, a yes, and it, it transforms us. It changes us. And maybe along the lines of we're transformed into his likeness from one glory to another as we experience the glory of God. We're being transformed, okay? The other thing that can happen is that we're, there's like a no in God's direction. 
okay? And when that happens, there's a hardness of heart that begins to develop where we reduce our sensitivity to the voice of the Spirit, the the things of God, our appetites for the things of God begin to change. And I want to just caution us to, today that if you see your appetites for God changing, then it's time to stop and take a test, a little test, like what's wrong here? Uh, maybe, uh, let me suggest we start at the simplest thing. Sometimes the thing that you need is to have a good nap, okay? <laughs> you just need a rest because you can get off off base a little bit and you're just not passionate about anything because you're tired. Sometimes we just need to rest. I found that to be true. Man, I can beat myself up over something and then, or even maybe the enemy is coming in and stirring something up. And then I find that I get a good rest. I'm ready to go again. I'm excited about the things of God again. I just needed a rest. Okay. That's the simplest solution. But if there's something else that's causing that, like there's a no in our um, relationship with God somewhere, it can begin to take us down that road of apathy and disconnectedness. And that's, that doesn't lead to a good place. And so we want to we wanna know that God's presence in our lives is transformative, but the direction that it goes has a lot to do with our response to it. Okay? All right. I know it's warm and Sunday, so let's keep going. All right. The first thing I, I want to mention in terms of this transformation is you see in this passage, and we can relate to this, is we see a trans. A transformation from captivity to consecration, okay? Captivity to consecration. The old place that Israel found itself was was uh, in bondage to Egypt. They they went from being part of a, a group of people that were kind of high up in the government of Egypt to a, a time when the Pharaoh forgot uh, Joseph and all of that and began to uh, oppress the people, and they cried out to the Lord, and they were in a kind of bondage, a kind of it was a literal bondage where they were not allowed to go they had to do they had to promote the egyptian building plan okay we're getting ready to have vbs about this so uh, let's get ourselves prepared they had to promote the egyptian building plan they had to uh, go along with what pharaoh desired they weren't working for god's purposes they were working for some human king some despot some man who thought he was god they were working for those purposes, and God heard their groanings, and he sent a deliverer. And so they went from a time of captivity to consecration. And if you look at these two verses, verse 1 and 2 here, you see, when Israel came out of Egypt, so it's talking about them having come out, Jacob from a people of a foreign tongue, okay? Jacob, this is a Hebrew parallelism. What you'll see here is one statement and then a line that follows it that says kind of the same thing, but maybe with a little bit different nuance to broaden or to bring some kind of detail into it that will help us. Um, Israel came out of Egypt. Jacob from a people of a foreign tongue. Jacob became, you hear that? Became God's, uh, excuse me, Judah became God's sanctuary and Israel his dominion. So they they were transferred from um, captivity to consecration. And I think this is what God has in mind for all of us. I'm getting ahead of myself. But in this Exodus, you see something interesting here. You see Israel, Jacob, Judah, and then once again Israel, and it might be nothing more than that slight poetic change, but there might be a little bit of nuance to it. And Israel has more to do with their national identity, and so it's talking about the same people here. Uh, and when it says Israel, remember what Israel means uh, when when um, Jacob meets God after he finally realizes he's getting ready to meet up with Esau, and Esau last time 
they talked, swore he was going to kill him. As soon as he saw him again, I'm going to kill you. And um, so <laughs> that'll send you into a prayer meeting. And that's exactly what happened is Jacob goes and gets into a prayer meeting. He's now got a lot to lose. And he meets with the Lord. It meets, and he wrestles, it says, with a man. There's, there's something going on there. Wrestled with a man until daybreak. And he said, I will not let you go till you bless me. And, and the person asked Jacob, what is your name? Okay. This is similar to the question that Isaac asked Jacob, what's your name? And he lied about it last time in order to get the blessing. And this time he was honest. He was open. He was confessing his true identity. He was telling the truth about it. And he said, I'm Jacob. All right. Well, from now on, you'll no longer be called, be called Jacob, but Israel. It's not an absolute thing because he still gets called Jacob. But what God is essentially doing is transforming him and saying, there's now another aspect to your identity. You've wrestled with God and and prevailed. In other words, you've gotten the blessing that you've desired. All along, you were living under the false pretenses of a former identity, and now that you've, you've, you've owned up to who you are, I can really bless you. Come on, isn't that true? You've owned up to who you are, and I can bless you as a result of that, and so God blesses him, and then he <laughs> touches his hip and gives him a limp the rest of his life. So, and uh, it tells us in Hebrews that when Jacob was old, he leaned on his staff as he as he blessed his sons and worshiped the Lord. Beautiful picture here. But, but all of that to say, this Israel identity uh, often relates to the idea of having wrestled with God. And th- this kind of is true of their national identity, isn't it? That they're always entangled in some way with God. Um, and then Jacob, as an emphasize, it kind of emphasizes the covenant relationship as God's spiritual people. And that mentions Judah, probably emphasizing the place of the sanctuary where, where God uh, put the temple, had the d- temple built, and where people came and gathered to celebrate the festivals. And then once again, Israel as God's kingdom. But here it's talking about the, the consecrating direction of these things. And I think we should understand them as saying the same thing about the same people. These aren't four different people or three different people being mentioned here. It's one people, but different nuances are being drawn out. Just as we're kind of complicated. We got, we got our roles in life, don't we? That some of us are, are dads and some of us are simultaneously your dads and sons, right? And your husbands and your brothers and your Christian and your coworker and you got all these different aspects of who you are, but you're one person, hopefully, Come on, if you're hearing good Christian preaching, you're not a different person at work than you are at home in, in, in terms of your character. Um, but this is kind of dealing with that whole thing, that this is dealing with one people group. And I think we should understand them as saying the same thing, and that the people of God are, are different now in terms of who they were under Egypt's bondage to now that they've been transformed and it's true in our identity as well, is that we went from captivity to consecration. And I should define consecration. It means to separate and to de- dedicate to a purpose. So when God consecrates us He and, and we involve ourselves in that, we set ourselves apart from certain things for a specific purpose. Okay? I went fishing this weekend, and this illustration just comes to mind, but... It's a good idea to have a different knife that you use in your kitchen than to use on the beach at Kenai. You understand what I mean? There's consecration that takes place there. Like, this is for this purpose, and this is for that purpose, and never the twain shall meet. We don't want to find our fishing knife uh, 
uh, stuck neatly in our silverware drawer along with the other stuff because you know what's out there, right? There's specific purposes for different things. And uh, sorry for that super lame illustration, but I think it shows the point that there are things that need to be set apart for specific use. And God is not uh, calling us uh, to be casual or to be used just for anything, but he wants us to be set apart for his purpose. Notice that Israel came out of Egypt and a people of strange tongues fell from among them, and they became God's sanctuary. Notice it says that in uh, verse 2 here that Judah became God's sanctuary. What is a sanctuary for? We should ask those questions when we, we come to Scripture. What is that for? Sanctuary is a holy place for God to dwell. And what I think he's saying here is that you're no longer among the Egyptians. I'm going to bring you out so that you can be a people that I can dwell in your midst. Okay? He wants to dwell in our midst. I think this has true, been true all along. If you look at the promises of the Old Testament and the callings of the Old Testament, you'll see that God wants to be our God and he wants us to be his people. Uh, we are his sheep, the we are his people and the sheep of his pasture, as we've read this morning. So this is God's desire, is to have a people set apart for himself. Now, he wants, I think he wants everybody. I think the scripture is clear that it's not his will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So it's my understanding that God wants to win everybody, okay? He wants to win everybody. Not everybody will choose to, but those who will, those who believe in his name, have the right to become the children of God, okay? So we have uh, a place of identity with him, okay, and with his presence, that we can live with his presence in our midst. And then it it, uh, shows us, too, that he became, Israel became God's dominion. God's the leader of his people. Look at verse 2 once again. It says, that Judah became God's sanctuary, Israel his dominion. I don't know what the Hebrew word is behind this, but dominion normally suggests the idea of a ruling authority, that God's ruling authority dwells in their midst. So if God wants to dwell with us, that's one. The other thing is he wants to, he wants to lead us, and he wants a people who are obedient to his commands. Okay, So he is our leader, and we have to obey him. And, and you know that God doesn't make up arbitrary rules, folks. Sometimes we are we are angry with anybody who wants to come in and impose a rule, okay? I don't think the whole Bible is rules, okay? So just so we're clear on that. But if ever God gives us a command, it's for a good reason. Are you with me? It's not arbitrary. Like, you know what would really spoil their fun is if we took away one of their days of the week and said that you just have to think about God thoughts on that day. Oh, he does it for our good, right? If he ever gives us a rule, it's for it's for a good reason. And so when it says Israel becomes God's dominion, that means so much more than just him dishing out rules. It means with God on the throne, there can be a blessed kingdom, okay, where he is prescribing what life should look like according to his design. And he's the one who made it to begin with. When when cultures and nations go off the rails, it's because they've distanced themselves from what God said is right. And we end up with all kinds of craziness because of that. Um, Daniel Estes, who's a commentator on this, says the Exodus was far more than just the liberation of 
the Israelites from Egyptian bondage. It was fundamentally about the establishment of the Lord's rule and presence on earth. The Lord did not deliver Israel so that it would become autonomous, but so that it could become the sanctuary of his holiness. The Israelites became free not to develop their own nationalism, but to be under Yahweh's service. And that's true of us. I don't know if you've thought about this, but there's a lot of people out there like to talk about freedom. And what they mean is freedom from. Freedom from. Freedom from this, freedom from that, freedom from the rule, freedom from oppression, freedom from tyranny. And that's true. That's one, that's one side of freedom. Okay? The other side of freedom is freedom to. We're, we have freedom from, but now there's freedom to. Freedom has a purpose, and we need to understand what it's about. And here, what this is talking about is God delivering them. Let my people go, he said to, Moses said to Pharaoh, why? So that they may go to a place that I'll show them and worship me. Okay? There's a purpose in it. It's not freedom from only. It's also freedom to. And anytime um, you start to see people standing up saying, well, in Christ, I'm free. Good. That's true. Okay? But free to what? Free to what? Just freedom from? Like, I don't have any rules. I can act just like the world, and, and I don't, and that's it? No. It's freedom, too. Paul said, um, you're free, but don't use your freedom as a, an occasion for the flesh, but by love serve one another. Okay? So you are free, and I don't think it's about keeping arbitrary rules. I think the rule becomes the rule of love, and you see it in its broad application, like, not in a, a sense, and I want you to hear me on this really closely. In a sense, this rule is bigger than all the other rules. Okay, because where there's not a written code, the rule of love still demands that you do the right thing. Okay, this is bigger. Okay. Not not everyone's <laughs> excited about that. There's just a few, but it's true. It's much bigger than that. Second Corinthians five fifteen says, And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. And Romans fourteen, seven and eight says, For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies to ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. Whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. And then another verse says, um, you're not your own, you're bought with a price. Therefore glorify God with your body. So we we don't just get to have freedom. Thank God for our freedom. It's not just freedom from, it's freedom to serve him. Okay? We're, this, is, this is really important for understanding what the Christian life's about. It's not all don'ts. I would suggest to you there's more do's than there are don'ts. The don'ts are there, but there's a lot of do. And the sin of omission is just as bad as the sin of commission, right? Still today, God transforms from uh, captivity to consecration. And Colossians 1.13, it says, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. And so we, too, have the same experience. It's not exactly the same details, but it's a great picture metaphor um, for us of leaving captivity and being consecrated to God. Okay? It's interesting to me, this is, we're on to the next point quickly, but it's interesting to me that God doesn't take them directly from Egypt to the promised land. Have you ever noticed that? They spend 11 months at Sinai getting moral instruction. Why? Well, they didn't keep it the way they should have. But the reason is so that they can live in the promised land the way they're supposed to. So that it can be a blessed place. But 
of course, after receiving the covenant, after receiving the law, they they kind of balk at going into the promised land and spend another 40 years there, and, and Moses has to tell them the law again. Uh, that's what Deuteronomy means. Did you know that? Deuteronomy means second law. It's the second giving of the law, so they gave it again. All right, the second um, transformation that takes place is from obstacle to opportunity, okay? This, I'm sorry if this sounds trite, but it's true. The, the sometimes what we see as the obstacle is the, the way that God's going to deliver us, okay? Do you see that? That this, this sometimes happens, and like, Peter, if you ask him when Jesus says, I have to go to the cross, Peter's like, you shall never go to the cross. Get behind me, Satan. You're an obstacle to me. In other words, that's not a God-inspired thought like the previous one was. You get back here out of my way because I know the way God's doing this. Okay? So he saw the cross as an obstacle, but actually the obstacle was the opportunity wasn't it? The cross was the opportunity. In the ancient myths outside of the Bible, uh, the sea in particular and the mountains were dangerous places. Let's look at these verses and it'll make more sense. Verse, uh, look at verses 3 through 6 with me. The sea looked and fled. Now God's bringing um, his people out of Egypt, so that's the context. The sea looked and fled. When did that happen? The Jordan turned back. The mountains leaped like rams, the hills like lambs. Why was it sea that you fled? Why, Jordan, did you turn back? Why mountains did you leap like rams? You hills like lambs? Do you notice that with those questions, no answer is given, it's implied? Okay? No, no direct answer is given, but here we see some obstacles. If you know the story, you know that when Israel left Egypt, Pharaoh kept changing his mind over and over again until the final plague, and then finally uh, he said, okay, uh, get your stuff and get out, and he sent them on their way. So they come to the place right along the edge of the Red Sea, and Pharaoh just changes his mind again. He decides to pursue, and he brings all his chariots out there and races them down, and God puts a wall of fire there, and the people are like, we're, we're going to die. And Moses, uh, God tells Moses, put your staff down. And the waters of the sea part and become the way by which the people go through. And it would be enough if that were the case. But then what happens is the Egyptians pursue as well. And as soon as the last Israelites out of the water, he closes it in. God closes in the water and he drowns the Egyptians. That sounds awful. But, you know, (laughs) they get to the other side and God's people recognize they've been delivered by God's mighty hand. And it says of Miriam, calls her Miriam the prophet, that she, she sang this song. She led Israel in this song. Uh, I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider he's thrown into the sea. And then it, go, it goes on from there. But that's the part we sang when <laughs> we were growing up. But it was an obstacle that turns into an opportunity. And when you think of the sea, we think of it from a little different perspective than the ancient mind. In the ancient myths outside the Bible and probably some in the Bible, the sea was viewed as chaotic and unknown, something that was to be feared, except for a few crazy people that we call sailors who dared to uh, sail. Uh, and it can still strike fear into the hearts of us three and a three and a half thousand years later. I read somewhere that it's estimated that we only know about 10% of the animal species that live in the ocean. Does that resonate with anybody else? I don't know where I heard that. That sounds like propaganda from somebody that's trying to get a grant to study 
marine biology. But if that's true, what is down there? Right? You hear about the great sea creatures and uh, the Old Testament being mentioned there. And, you know, when I think about all that's down, and I don't know much about, you know, I'm from Kansas, so what does that tell you? I don't know much about the ocean. But in those days, uh, they didn't have maps like what we have, no compasses, no primitive boats, or they did have primitive boats. Sorry, they did have primitive boats. They had far less knowledge about what was down there. And so for them, the sea was terrifying. Okay, so listen to how this reads once again and, and hear what it must be saying. It says in verse 3, the sea looked and fled. The sea fled. Okay, The language that's used here is language of terror. That God's people went through the sea. The sea, who most people are afraid of because of its chaos, is afraid of God. Okay, I think that's really, really significant is the thing that often we fear is afraid of God. It trembles and it runs away. It's afraid of God. So you see that here that um, the sea was terrifying, but the sea flees from the Lord in terror. It moves at his command, okay? And then the Jordan, you remember as they come to the Jordan finally, and it's time for them to go across, is that the priests carried their... um, carried the Ark of the Covenant, and they stood at the edge of the waters, and they put their feet in. When they put their feet in, it was at flood stage, so that means it's extra wide, right? The waters begin to pile up downstream somewhere. Somebody pointed out the fact that where it was piled up downstream means that God already began the miracle before they got there and put their feet in, okay? It's piled up upstream, I should say. Did I say downstream? Upstream. It's piled up upstream, which means it takes time for water to move down, That means the miracle already began before they stepped out in faith. And I think that's really profound to think about that they did that, and then they crossed, the people crossed, and God took another obstacle and turned it into an opportunity for them to come into the promised land. Okay, The mountains, look at the mountains. It says in verse um, 4, the mountains leap like rams, the hills like lambs. Mountains can kind of be a terrifying thing. You remember Psalm I think it's 121 where it says, I look, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, and he neither slumbers nor sleeps. So there's a terrifying thing about going through the mountains at times, especially back then. But those were places where they were thought to be demons, and, and other gods lived on tops of mountains. And so for a lot of people, that's a fearful place. But you notice that when the Lord comes in and his people come in and take possession of the land, that there is rejoicing. The mountains, the language that's used here is the language of rejoicing. The mountains finally are not, are not the, the presence or the homes of these foreign gods, but they're the place where Yahweh's blessing can be poured out all across the land. It's not just on the mountains, but devoid of all those other gods, the mountains can rejoice. And I think this is uh, the point of this. And you see it again when the people come back from uh, captivity later on. God's people didn't live faithfully for him, and he sent them into exile. And Isaiah promises before the exile that when they come back, things like the mountains um, will rejoice, the mountains will sing, and the trees of the fields will clap their hands, Isaiah 55, 12, Isaiah 49, 13, Isaiah 44, 23. The mountains of Canaan rejoice at the presence of the Lord as he brings in his holy people, as he, and as he brings them back, 
And these mountains were once places where the Canaanite gods were supposed to dwell. You remember that when Elijah uh, faced off against the prophets of Baal, it's really interesting how he does that. He gives them home field advantage. I don't know if you thought about this, but they go up on Mount Carmel, right? That's where the contest is. Baal is supposed to be the god of thunder. And so home field advantage, the higher you are, I don't know if you know about this, but when lightning strikes, it's the high places first, right? And so that that's home field advantage for the worshipers of Baal. And so not only that, but he says, I want you to know there's no parlor tricks here, so pour water on mine. And then they have the contest, and the Baal prophets clamor all day, man, no response. And they say that Elijah prays some 66-word prayer, and a, a lightning bolt consumes the sacrifice, burns it to the ground, burns the altar even. And so the whole reason they do that mountain thing is because that's where the gods were supposed to dwell, the other gods. Well, when Yahweh brings his people to the land, he dispels the other gods. Okay, And they'll do that in our lives too. You know, I know this is a little bit of a stretch from our text here, but when you come in uh, to follow the Lord and he really moves in, he'll dispel the other gods. He will deal with our idolatries. Okay, It's important to know. So the obstacle becomes the opportunity, and you see the mountains uh, leaping like rams, the hills like lambs. There's rejoicing at this. And then the question is, why did you respond in this way, O mountain and hills? Why did you respond in this way, O seas and Jordan? And it's because God has done something, and he's victorious over nature, and he can do it again. He can take our obstacles and turn them into opportunities in some way that will glorify him. Now, this doesn't mean that we should think that God is going to make all of our wildest dreams come true. Okay? All of this is for his glory. And when, you, when he's your God, he can, he can give us things out of his kindness just because we want them. He can do that. But that's a little bit different from the majority of times when he just says, I'm going to do what's for the best. Are you with me? That God wants to do what's for the best. We don't always like what's the best. We like what's the best for us. But he, can, he will do what's for the best. And he can change these obstacles into opportunities for his glory. The sea was an obstacle for Israel when it fled from Egypt. God made a way. The Jordan was an obstacle when Israel was to enter Canaan. And God uh, set back the waters. The mountains were obstacles too. They could be uh, fortifications. They could be a spiritual obstacle. But God made a way even there. And he turned things around. Okay. Finally, here is... Uh, in verses 7 through 8, uh, you see God transforming poverty into provision. And by the way, if you want an acronym for the message this morning, COP, okay, C-O-P, right? Um, captivity to consecration, obstacle to opportunity, and then poverty to provision in this transformation. Verses 7 and 8. Verse 8 tells the story of, of uh, Exodus 17. 1 through 7, or Numbers chapter 20, verses 1 through 11, when Israel was at Rephidim and there was no water, and the people began to grumble against Moses and say, you brought us out here to die, as if God had no forethought. Do you know that when you've complained, you've said, essentially, God, you didn't think about what this was going to be like? And I'm not suggesting every direction we've ever gone in life is what God wanted. Sometimes we, we do our own thing in rebellion, and then we blame God for the outcome. Can't do that. 
because if he warned us and he wanted something different, we can't blame him for the outcome of that. But I'd like you to notice that they're all they're at least following, if not in their heart, at least with their feet and their bodies. They're going God's direction where he's leading them. Cloud by day, fire by night. And now we're at Rephidim. And we don't have any water. How are we going to get water for our kids? How about our animals that we rely upon? Um, what about ourselves? We need water too. And it's been three days. Moses, what's going on? Can, listen, can God give us water? They were testing the Lord by doing this. There's something evil in their heart by saying this. Can, is this God able to give us water? And God tells Moses, Moses says to the Lord, Lord, (laughs) these people that you've given me are complaining. There's no water. And so the Lord says, take your staff and I want you to hit the rock. And when you hit it, it's going to break open and water is going to come out. And everybody's going to have their fill and more. And that's exactly what he did. This is the first occasion. Remember the second occasion. He shouldn't have struck the rock. But in this occasion, he strikes the rock. The water comes out. And everybody gets what they need. And God being there is able to transform what was a, an area of poverty to the provision that they needed to be sustained. And sometimes we think that we look at a circumstance or look at uh, what may appear to be a rock in our estimation and not realize that that very thing may be the way that God brings life. Okay. We may not be able to see it at the moment, but it can be the very thing that God helps us to grow. I remember when I was going to Bible college, I grew up in a church that sang mostly choruses. And um, I thought hymns were for dead churches. Can I tell you that without you judging me too bad? This is when I came out of, uh, when I was a, a young man. We sang some hymns, but mostly they were written on the screen. Okay, So I knew the hymns because we'd heard them sang, but anyway... Um, when I was in Bible college, there was a few weeks that I started going to a church. It was a Pentecostal church, spirit-filled church. Some of the leadership, there were great men and women of God. But they sang all hymns. And I thought to myself, Lord, how can there be any life here? How can there be any life here when we're singing these old songs? Okay, I'm showing my immaturity. I'm not, I don't feel that way anymore. I often think that uh, the hymns, if maybe they didn't have the vibrancy or the particular tone of contemporaneity that I thought should, uh, that we should have, but what they, did, what they did have that many of the other songs didn't have was deep content, rich theology. And I, didn't, I had no appetite for that when I was 17 and 18. I had no appetite for that. What I wanted was somebody to clap me up into a frenzy I wanted hype. I wanted to be super excited about everything. I wanted to sing the songs that made me tearful and move my emotions. I didn't necessarily want the songs that would instruct my brain and my heart towards the things of God and build solid foundations. And that can happen through choruses, too. I'm not trying to create a false distinction. What I'm trying to say is the thing that I thought was dead, there was life in it. You you see what I'm saying? I know that's a far stretch here, but... Here they're looking at a rock. Nothing to me says <laughs> hopelessness like a big, dry, dead-looking rock. Okay? You look at that. Where, where can you go from there? And Moses strikes. I don't know how hard he hit it, but God causes it to crack and water to pour forth. They called that place uh, 
Masa and Meribah, I think it means something like testing and um, grumbling, complaining, bitterness. Okay, they were they were upset about that uh, situation. But the Lord provided in that moment when they had nothing. He took care of his covenant people. The God of the God of Jacob took care of his covenant people, and he will for us too. That he knows how to get us if we're tr- if we'll trust him and we'll we'll walk in faith. And I, I don't mean something weird by that. I mean in perpetual trust. And faith means um, more than just I believe in a set of propositions. It means it means allegiance to a person. Okay. God, I don't know where you're leading me, but I know you're alive and that you're leading, and I can trust you. Okay. Trust, faith, saving faith, I don't think is just believing in the death, burial, and resurrection. It includes that, but it believes also in a living Lord. Come on, that we're trusting a living Lord. It's not just agreement about facts of the past. I don't want to minimize that because sometimes we like to put things on extreme ends. It's both. That because he died and rose again, he's a trustworthy Savior. And we trust him presently with our allegiance and our obedience to him. That's what he's called us to. When we do that, we can know he's going to take care of us. And he knows how to get us, if we want to use our present analogy, from Egypt to the promised land. Egypt's the old area of life of bondage that we used to live in where we were under the dominion of something else. And God has brought us out of that, delivered us, and he's bringing us into the kingdom of the son he loves. And it's not just bringing us, he's brought us there. Okay? So we know that we can trust him for all the provision that's necessary to get us from point A to point B. He, know, he knows how to do it. He's a qualified and capable leader. And he took care of his covenant people. And the interesting thing about this is, the way that the Bible uses God of Jacob, this suggests some kind of a close personal familiarity. So when you think of the God of Israel, you're thinking of a God of a bunch of people usually. Okay? When you hear God of Jacob, you usually it usually emphasizes the head of Jacob, a head of Israel, which is Jacob himself. And to me, it suggests that we're deal- he's dealing with the whole nation as one person. This includes us in the big story. It helps us to connect to the same God and to know that we're part of that same redemptive story. The God of Jacob is our God too. So these are the the transformations which the Lord's presence can cause in people's lives, and I think it still happens in salvation. Take a, a simple look at the cross and see if you don't see it there. From captivity to sin to consecration to God, it happens when we turn our lives over to Christ. We're brought out of captivity to sin and consecrated to the Lord. That's holiness, right? Okay. And then you see uh, the obstacle of the cross and the opportunity for people to be forgiven. What, what everyone seemed to see as a dead end, God saw as the pathway for life. The cross, like you go to the cross, Jesus, and that's it. No, it's not it. There's a third day coming. And in the resurrection, there's hope and there's opportunity for a new life, for forgiveness, for a living Lord to walk with us in covenant relationship. It was necessary for him to go to the cross. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. He knew he would go to the cross. He determined to go to the cross. And he told that to his disciples. And either it went over their head or they in some way contradicted it. But he went anyway. And thank God he did. 
you see from poverty to provision that we, in terms of our spiritual lives, were, were paupers and poor, and even our best offerings were filthy rags to him. If you think of righteousness, we have no righteousness of our own that qualifies us for heaven or relationship with him at all, right? How do we get that righteousness? We stand in his righteousness, his righteousness given to us. And then I think as a result of that, we, we start to live up in that way to the righteous life that he's called us to. And so it's a, it's a poverty to provision. We didn't have what we needed, but God met the, the shortfall for us. In fact, not even met the shortfall. We just erase our bank account and we apply his payment, and it's enough. Okay? We have nothing good to offer him. And all this is due to the presence of the Lord, the God of Jacob. Now, I'd like you to notice this last part. I kind of skipped over verse 7 here because I wanted to save it to the end. Verse 7 says, verse 8, we talked about he turned the rock into a pool, the hard rock into springs of water. Verse 7, tremble earth at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turned the rock into the pool and the hard rock into springs of water. So notice that uh, now the earth is to do this. Earth meaning here, I think not just inanimate objects. I, I personally think that God is less concerned about this mountain over here. O'Malley, pick one, pick the one you like best. I think he's concerned less about that than one soul. Don't you? Like, it's not the earth. We, we tend to trouble ourselves with like, man, look at this. It's beautiful. Yes, it is. But in God's estimation and value, don't you think that he cares about one eternal person more than any part of the earth which will melt with a fervent heat. I think he does. I think he cares more about people. And I think we should too. Not that that's not important. It's not an either or proposition. Like The earth matters to God. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He cares about it. But how much more valuable the people that he loves. Sometimes these words are used figuratively, and I think it is here. When it's talking about earth, I don't think he's talking about literal mountains or the land that we walk on, I think here it's talking about people everywhere. So when he, you know, like the world, when it says that in John three sixteen, God loved the world in this way. God so loved the world. It's not talking about the cosmos in terms of the created uh, material world like this and your yard and all of that. What he's talking about is people. Are you with me? And here, the earth, what is the earth to do? Tremble at the presence of the Lord. Tremble at the presence of the Lord. The earth means people everywhere. And here's an interesting thing here. What is the earth to do? What are people everywhere to do? Tremble. Now, I don't know which this means. Uh, it suggests here kind of a neutral thing. When it says tremble, it suggests uh, to me fear. Okay, but do you know that this word... Uh, and maybe it's appropriate that it's like this. This word here can also mean to whirl around or dance. Did you know that? So uh, you might think I've gone off my rocker, but let me share some references where this is the case. Exodus 15 is really appropriate where it talks about the people dancing when they came across the Red Sea. Exodus 15 verse 50, it uses the same word. It, it's a little bit different form of it, but it uses the same word to mean that the, the women sang and they danced with tambourines. They trembled before the Lord. 
okay? And maybe one reference isn't enough. How about in uh, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 6, after David killed Goliath, it says that they came in and the women were along the road and they were singing and trembling, okay? Use the word dance there, but this is the same Hebrew word behind these two. But on the other side of it, there are times when, like in Psalm 97, verse 4, uh, his lightning lights up the world, the earth sees, and it trembles. Psalm 55, verse 4, Psalm 77, verse 16, there it's used in reference for fear. So which one? I don't know which one, but maybe this is a perfectly appropriate time for ambiguity. Like how you respond to the Lord may depend upon where your heart is. Should you fear? Yes, you should fear. Should you rejoice? Yes, you should rejoice. And if you look earlier in this passage, the waters are fearing, the mountains are rejoicing. You can see both of them. It's the appropriate response to both fear, and that means, I think, to take God seriously. And when you do, also to have great joy because he has done great things for us. Thanks for your gracious attention. So what are we to do with the, uh, the history of God in our lives? This verse doesn't give us, um, this passage doesn't give us any instructions except there at the very end, but it's telling the whole earth to do that. That's you and me, surely. But apart from that, how do we deal with those, those moments when, when God has done big things for you? I think, one, we ought to account for all of these stories leading up to the coming of Christ as being part of our story. Because if, if it didn't happen, our story is different. If the Israelites don't come out of Egypt, our story is different. Are you with me? If Jesus doesn't die on the cross and, come, and be raised to life, our story is different. All of that is part of our story. And if we haven't valued history up to this point, I think we need to change our mind about that. It's important. What are we to do with our journal entries and personal moments where God has moved? I think the response here is implied. We are to praise the Lord. We are we're to give him honor and glory for what he's done. He's consecrated us. He has given us opportunity. He's provided for us. All of those things that we, we've been talking about here. So are we waiting for somebody to tell us? I think the event, anytime God does something, the event is an invitation for praise. Amen. All right, Zach, would you come lead us? Today, our response is this, is we're going to worship the Lord for a few moments, and then we're going to be dismissed into this nice weather, and we're going to give thanks to the Lord. And uh, if you feel that you're in the moment of a difficulty right now, I want to invite you to come to the altars. This altar is open. Spend a few moments in prayer. If you've never made Jesus Lord of your life, would you pray a simple prayer? Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I stand in need of your grace. Something like that. God responds to the simple plea is that I need you. Where we're insufficient, he is enough. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.